0: With the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings. Well, good morning. Blessings to you and Merry, Merry Christmas. We are in week four of our series talking about the most wonderful time of the year and looking at some of some of the holiday traditions and beliefs that we hold to and how they point to who Jesus is and what He would ultimately accomplish for us on the cross and eventually His return as He comes to reign on the earth forever and forever. And so just to catch you up in this series, we've talked about how the coming of Jesus in Christmas brings people together. This time of year, unlike any other time of year, really brings people together in a really supernatural way to experience the comfort and joy of the season and really the goodness of God. Because the Bible says all good gifts, all good things come from our Father in heaven. So wherever you are, if you're experiencing goodness, that is a gift from the Lord, So he brings people together to experience goodness. We talked about how the feasting of the season, the meals that we have, the celebrations, reflects the true, the only true and satisfying reality of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to truly satisfy the longings of your heart and your soul. That we were created, the reason why we exist is to have fellowship and relationship with God. And anything outside of that does not fulfill, does not satisfy. And we're caught in this world, in this tug of war between what truly satisfies, and that's God, His presence, His Spirit, knowing Jesus, having fellowship with Him, and everything else, the, the enemy, the devil, and this world tries to offer us. Everything that we could pursue in this life that is so temporary, like the party or wealth and fame and fortune, all these things we can invest ourselves in do not satisfy, only God satisfies. And when Jesus was laid in that manger, what God was telling all of his lost sheep is come and feast on the very thing that will satisfy your soul. We talked about this is the season for giving gifts and part of the celebrations and This season is giving gifts to one another and how Jesus Christ is our true and greatest gift. That what Jesus did, what he accomplished for us, and the fact that the Father gave us his Son to not just be born, but to one day die for the sins of the world is the greatest gift we could ever hope to have because that gift not only expunged our sin, but made it possible to then be fulfilled in God through a relationship in Jesus Christ. Such an amazing, amazing thing that God has done. And today we're going to talk about this being the most wonderful time for doing good. This is the most wonderful time for doing good. Good. It is no secret that along with the holiday season, there seems to be an uptick in efforts to do good things or do good works uh, to spread Christmas cheer. I, I love the movie Elf because there's a, a key scene in that movie where he says, The greatest way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And this season just emotes that desire for people to spread cheer, to do good, to bless. People, but in the church, in ministry, amongst pastors, especially, there's this running joke about special Sundays like holidays, like Christmas. We call those Be Kind to God Sundays because people who typically don't attend all throughout the year will show up on Christmas Day or, or Easter. There are these special Sundays. According to a research firm called Pew Research, it says that priests and ministers have long noted a sharp increase in church attendance around the two most significant Christian holidays, Christmas and Easter. And they've even given some of those who attend services a nickname called Cheristers, Because they're here for Christmas and Easter. So they're true Easters. And churches have launched campaigns to get them to attend more regularly. So there's this this influx of attendance in people. Around this time of year, something triggers in them, whether it is a traditional upbringing or something in their soul that says, this time of year, I need to reconnect in some way with God. That there's something missing, and I need to take time to reconnect to whatever that is. Something around this time of year puts people in the mindset of getting out of selfish routines and reconnecting with faith and getting involved in good causes as a way to help them feel less self-centered and more like they're making a difference in the world. In an article by the Huffington Post called Why Volunteering Over the Holidays Isn't the Best Idea by Eleanor Goldberg, she writes that nationally, projects saw a 42% increase in volunteers last year over the holidays ...compared to sign-ups for the whole year, according to data compiled by Hands-On Connect, a group that helps nonprofits manage their volunteer base. That spike was even more dramatic for some local groups. The Center for Volunteer and Nonprofit Leadership, a California group that offers guidance to nonprofits, reported a 200% increase in volunteers over the fall and winter compared to the spring and summer months. And what she's arguing in her, in her uh, article is simply that even though this phenomenon is, is demonstrable, you can track it and see it to be true, it really doesn't help the overall cause because after the holidays, that volunteerism dies right off. The, the rest of the year, people are scrounging for volunteers and they have an overabundance during the holidays because this is a phenomenon that is just exists in our world. Again, because there's something that compels us to do good during the holidays. And it could be that during the holiday season, because of the fellowship, because of the feast, because of the gifts that we receive, we are naturally and spiritually shifting our focus away from ourselves to other people, giving us time to meditate on the needs of others who don't get the opportunity to enjoy the same blessings we have. In our lives. And because we stop focusing on self and start focusing on those who have need, it cultivates a compassion, a compassion that motivates us into action. And because it's not just believers who volunteer during the holidays, people who try to live good and moral lives are generous around the holidays. They 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 volunteer, they do different things, they try to do acts of kindness and generosity as well. I believe. That it's just like how the Spirit of God brings people together during the holidays to experience comfort and joy. That through our fellowship, our feasting, and our giving of gifts, what we're doing, even if we recognize it or not, is that we are telling a greater story, a story to the world about who Jesus is. During this time here, even those who have no faith whatsoever, as they come together to do good around the holidays, we are actually telling in the Spirit a story about the goodness of our God and not just who Jesus is and that He came, but that also what He would accomplish in His life. In the book of Acts, it says that Jesus went around doing good and freeing all who were oppressed by the devil. The same acts of kindness that we do are synonymous with acts of love, this, this idea to love those who, who are in need of a blessing. And not only was the coming of Jesus an act of love, but it was the act of greatest love. That The Bible tells us in John 15, 13, that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus didn't just come one day because he thought it was a good idea. He came on a mission From day one, it was to one day redeem what was lost, to give his life so that yours could be spared, to give his blood so yours could be saved, to give his soul, his spirit, everything within him so that you could be redeemed and restored to God. The greatest definition of love, Jesus says, is this self-sacrificing type of love, self-sacrificing. And we think we understand what that kind of love is. We think we get kind of that concept that love is to be sacrificial. And Jesus had to even address this in his day because mankind really hasn't changed much. We might be 2,000 years down the timeline from those that lived during the time of Christ, but humanity really hasn't changed much. We still wrestle with the same concepts, the same ideas, the same cultural issues as they did back then. And Jesus, in his day, as he's addressing really what love is, this self-sacrificing type of love, he gets to the heart of what I think we all struggle with to a degree. In Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, here's what Jesus says as he's speaking to this group of religious leaders. He says, and then he turned to his host as he's at this dinner party. He says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, Don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Think about this. During this holiday season, we gather together, we give gifts, but how many of those gatherings are comprised of people who pay us back, who are easy to love, our family, our friends, those that we have relationship with. See, Jesus is saying that even you might be in a certain place, and it's been like this in our life before, where we go to a gathering of friends and family, and just to buy gifts and participate in exchange has been kind of a sacrifice where we had to skimp in other areas in order to to participate in these gifts. But we wanted to because we wanted to show love to those that we were coming uh, to fellowship with. But here Jesus says that that's really not a sacrifice. Why? Because you get a gift in return. You get something in return. You get a benefit. It's like that's really, though you think it's love, you you feel like it's love, and it even kind of feels like a sacrifice. Deep down at the core of it, it's not really love because there's something in it for you. This goes to the heart of much of the good deeds during this season Because just before he says this, he addresses these religious leaders because at this party, they were all fighting for the prominent position at the table, the honorable position. And that's really kind of what happens in us is that we even, we think we're trying to do good things. And we look at those that maybe the motivation of our time, of our heart is to do good things for people that don't have the same blessings as we do but it's really not because we're loving them that we're doing that good deed. It's really to promote ourselves because we'll look at them and say, they are less fortunate than we are. And by saying that, what it's revealing a hard issue is that we're categorizing ourselves in a place where they are not in return, that they're in a place beneath us. And so we're gonna stoop down to their level in order to serve them. And it's a self-righteous, self Uh, promoting type of an attitude, and Jesus says that's not love. It's not love to, to elevate yourself over other people, to make yourself feel good. Even in an act of helping someone in need, if the heart of it is to make yourself feel good for doing a good deed, then the heart motivation nullifies love in the gift. Jesus is telling us that true sacrificial love is love that hurts. It's love that hurts. There's no benefit to us. The only benefit is to the person who is the receiver of the act of love. And we have a hard time with this. I struggle with this. We all struggle with this because we believe that I deserve a response. I deserve return for my love, a return on my investment in you. But true love has no benefit to us. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says as he writes this great speech on love, he says love does not demand its own way. It's not boastful, proud, or rude. It doesn't puff itself up. There's nothing selfish or self-centered in true love. But there's a lot of self-centeredness even in our love if we look at the core of it. Many who serve at homeless shelters, soup kitchens, those who do special things during the holidays, they don't do it because it's a real sacrifice. They do it because of what they get out of it in return, even if it's just that good, warm feeling. True love, true goodness is absent of pride, self-righteousness, or self-benefit. Jesus talks about this later in Luke six twenty nine. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. Imagine that. Someone's angry at you and slaps you on the cheek. Don't repay evil for evil. Offer your other cheek to be slapped. Give them the opportunity. Love them enough to hurt you again. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Think about that. If someone says, I want that coat, give it to them, but then also offer your shirt. Matthew 5.41, this was a common issue in their day because the Roman soldiers were occupying the land. They were in charge, and often they would demand a Jew to carry their equipment for a period of time. Often it was at least a mile, uh, and and often it could have been more. When Jesus was crucified, they commanded another man to carry his cross because he couldn't carry it the rest of the way. This was a common thing, but in Matthew 5.41, Jesus says if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it a second mile. Not out of obligation, but out of Love. Love. This is where the phrase go the second mile comes from. It's this idea that just doing the basic, just doing enough, just doing what's expected isn't enough to equal love. True love is sacrificial and it hurts because there's no earthly reward for it. It costs you something. And the reason why Jesus tells us to love this way is not only because this is the love that he gives, but it's also the same love we cry out for. This is the love that our heart aches for, a love that has no obligations, requirements, or risk that's given freely and generously just because we are loved. We're not made to feel guilty to receive it or obligated to reciprocate it because it has no demands or manipulation behind it. It's not, I'm gonna love you this way and I expect you to love me in return. It's no, I'm gonna love you just because I love you regardless of your response to me. God's love is unconditional. There are no expectations, but simply an invitation to receive it as a gift. And that kind of love is the love that truly fulfills. It's the love that creates security and that draws our hearts in and says, Okay, the, I'm safe to be vulnerable. I'm safe just to come and be here because there's nothing expected of me to do in return. It's the kind of love that poems are penned about and stories are recorded about. It's a pure love that overwhelms and has the power to change lives. And the story of Jesus' birth begins with such a love, not just in the father sending his son, which is enough of an illustration, but also in sending Jesus into the world, there was a man in the story who chooses love over reputation and sacrifice over religious sentiment. It's a man that's often overlooked, In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we're going to read about the story of Christ's birth. And this is what the word of God says. It says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Think about this. In this culture, in this day and age, engagement was binding as marriage. They were considered married, even though they had not consummated the relationship yet. There was about a a year period where the husband would go and build a home, prepare for his bride, and when the home was ready, he would come back and collect his wife. They would consummate the marriage, and then it was a sealed deal. So even though they had not uh, been intimate yet, they were considered married by law, by religious uh, contract, and in relationship. So here we have Joseph, and one day he discovers his wife is pregnant, and he knows he's not the father. That's a big deal. That's a devastating blow. In other words, my wife has been unfaithful. And what she tells him is that this is God's baby. Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Your spouse comes to you and says, I have had an affair. There is a child, but don't worry. The one I was with was God. That's crazy. You know, I mean, like it's, like, it's not enough that there's been a betrayal in this relationship. Now you're humiliating me because you want me to, 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 to believe this ridiculous story. What, do you think I'm stupid? I mean, like, it, it's, it's, it's salt in the wound. It, it's more flames on the fire. And in this, this day and age, Joseph had the religious right to accuse his wife And to claim justice. And if he had did that, she would have been taken outside the city and stoned to death. Because it was against the law of Moses for adultery. And they would have ended her life because of the transgression. And that was his right. He would have been legally justified to do so. And in a situation like this, there have been crimes of passion that have been done for less. It was within his purview to demand justice over what his wife had done in his mind. Not only would that be devastating, but how humiliated would you feel that your love broke your vows and then tried to convince you of such a thing? It would be enough to enrage a person into a crime of passion. But Joseph was a righteous man, and he was not vindictive. Instead of vengeance and justice, he decided he was going to end the engagement privately to keep Mary safe. What a man. What a man. And I believe he did so because he really loved her. And even in the breakup, he was looking out for the one that he loved. He was putting her interests over his own. And then that night, Joseph has a dream and What Mary said was confirmed by the angel, which I believe was a major sigh of relief. Imagine the relief. Oh my goodness, she was telling the truth. And what restoration even began to happen in his life. And now he was faced with a different issue. By taking the child as his own, by continuing in this marriage, he would then face ridicule from his community as being a fornicator. She's pregnant outside of wedlock and you're taking him as your own, I wonder whose son it really is. I wonder who did things out of order. He would have then begin to face ridicule from the community because everyone would know that she was pregnant before they had officially consummated the marriage, and the stigma would follow them wherever they went. But what did Joseph do? He chose to love. He sacrificed his reputation, He adopted Jesus as his very own son, and he married Mary. And what's even more amazing in verse 25, it says that he was not intimate until his wife had the child, which means he not only sacrificed his reputation, he sacrificed every emotion, physical drive, conjugal right, everything that was right to him as a husband until his wife had given birth. In other words, he said, God, I'm going to let you have my bride until your will with her is accomplished, and then I will receive her into myself. I'm telling you people, there hasn't been a man like him on the planet. God's son was born through sacrificial love. He came in a moment where sacrificial love was the environment that he was born into, He came into this world in sacrifice, and he would leave this world through sacrifice, a sacrifice where he would give himself the same way his earthly father modeled for him, laying his own life down for his friends, giving a love that we could never repay, giving us a love where there was no immediate benefit to himself because even though Jesus is God and he's omniscient, he, he knows everything in his humanity, he didn't know who was going to follow him and who wasn't, but yet he prayed for us. He prayed for all who would believe. In John 17, he knew those that God had given him while he was here, but then he prayed for those who would come after because his whole longing was that all who call on the name of the Lord would be saved, and the whole world who was offered this gift of love would then respond To God in kind. That one day we would turn away from sin and turn to God through Christ in faith. This is his heart, and he gave his life, believing that many would choose the way of salvation. And what is a powerful revelation in John 17 is this chapter of Jesus just before his crucifixion. Praise, And this is the longest prayer we have recorded from the Lord, but he's praying and interceding to God just before his death on the cross. And the last words of anyone are the most important words that they have to say. And these are literally the Lord's last words. In John 17, 3 through 5, this is what... He says, he says, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to the earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave to me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Jesus is just speaking about what was in place before creation, that this was an eternal relationship where Jesus is God, one of the persons of the Holy Trinity, this divine family of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these three persons that comprise the one and true God. They enjoyed perfect unity together, complete glory, power, wisdom, righteousness, holiness for all eternity past. This, this God self-existed and was in need of nothing. He lacked nothing in His perfection. And Jesus was the object of the fullness of God's love. Together with the Holy Spirit, they lacked no good thing. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Spirit loved both the Father and the Son. They were empty of nothing. And such love overflowed in the beauty and splendor of God's heart. And at some point in the past, Genesis one twenty six, God begins to create this planet, this world, and he says these famous words, and God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Out of the overflow of God's love in his heart, he created mankind, and not just to create another creature, but to make a being to be just like him. In other words, a being that would not only experience perfection and love, but that out of the overflow of their heart, love would then be poured out unto others. The Godhead made humanity out of the overflow of divine love. And when we were first created, we enjoyed this perfection. We had relationship with God and it was complete and it was perfect. There wasn't any shame or guilt or sin or pain. And out of the overflow of Receiving God's love to us, it overflowed out of man unto woman in this first marriage, this divine family. But then one day, sin entered into the world and that love was shattered. For we chose not to love God in return, but to go our own way, and we broke the fellowship that we had with God in our ability to experience that love and God's eternal life. It was devastated. So this is why Jesus came into the world, to restore us to the way we were before sin entered into the world. And in that prayer of Jesus, in John 17, in verse 22, Jesus says, I have given them the glory you gave me. I came to restore back what you've given me, God, this glory, so that we may they may be one as we are one. Everything that was fractured off and broken when sin entered into the world, I came in to restore, and my work is accomplished. I am restoring it. This is happening, and I am in them as you are in me. This fellowship is coming back together. In other words, the bond that was broken, the connection has been reestablished. The beauty of God's fellowship with mankind is restored in Christ Jesus. And through the word of God, we are being purified through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, Daddy, I've done it. I've accomplished it. I'm presenting them to you untainted and unstained by the world to live in glory with you and with me forever and forever and forever. And he goes on. So may they experience in the here and now such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know I am that I am. And that you love them as much as you love me. We can't comprehend the love that God has for himself nor can we understand the love that he has for you, which equals the love that he has for his son. There are two great commandments, Jesus said. One is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second, he said, is just like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. As much as God loves the relationships that he has within himself, he also loves you with an eternal Undying, unconditional love. Verse 24, he says, Father, I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am, that they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me before the world began. He's inviting us into the very relationship that he had with himself. Oh, righteous Father, verse 25, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me, and I've revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. God's will is for you to be like him. Not God's, but filled with his amazing love. Reflecting his glory, that your love would overflow into the lives of other people. And Jesus came into sacrificial love. He lived in sacrificial love. He died in sacrificial love. He rose from the dead in sacrificial love to invite us back into the fullness of the love of God to fill us in our hearts, in our lives with his love so we can experience the depth, the height, the width and the greatness of his love for us and be so radically transformed by that reality that nothing in this world pales in comparison, that no temptation the enemy could offer could be a substitute for the greatness of the love of our God, that we would recognize that there's nothing that any one person could do to fulfill us but only in God through Christ could we be eternally fulfilled, that there's more love in that simple truth that any one person can contain and that it so sets us on fire that we have to go out and share that love with the world. And to be like God and image his glory, we'd be compelled to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if we love ourselves the way God loves us and reflect his image, then I'm telling you, church, that the world is gonna be transformed. You are the beloved This is the most wonderful time for doing good. But not to be religious. Not to make us feel good about ourselves or for traditions that we keep year to year. Or just because that's what we've done with friends and family time and time again. This is the most wonderful time of the year for doing good. Because as we do real good, real works through sacrificial love, the glory of God can be on display in our lives and legacies can be transformed. Lives can be transformed through the amazing love of God. Every service we have, every volunteer hour, every secret gift, every donation to St. Jude's or the Salvation Army or Toys for Tots or cancer research, every food basket or food giveaway that you brave the cold for, if you do it out of genuine sacrificial love, what you're doing is you're telling the story of God's love through your actions and inviting the power of the Spirit to be unleashed through your life. And the amazing part of it is that this doesn't have to happen simply one time of year. As the people of God, the Holy Spirit lives in us, which means wherever we go, so does the Holy Spirit. We take the presence of God with us and God's desire is that the whole earth would be filled with his glory all year long that this season of comfort and joy would not come and go every 11 months but it would go with us wherever we go in every environment in every situation that we'd be so filled with God's love that we'd never have a bad day even in the midst of bad situations We've been given the privilege of living in and through his love every day of our lives. Let's not let the reminder of this season lose its momentum in the new year, but let's let this wonderful time of year be all year long as we celebrate every day the goodness of our God and share his love, the good news of what Jesus has done for those who would call on his name. Let's pray.